Welcome to Horses for Future. Horse people can make a difference in the climate change crisis. Together, we're learning how. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step -step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. But this isn't a podcast about horse training. Instead, I want to use this podcast to learn more about what we can each do to help mitigate the climate change crisis. Of course, right now what's on everyone's mind is the coronavirus, not so much climate change. And a topic that is front and center right now for a great many people is what to do about reopening schools. Whether you are a parent or a teacher, whether or not to reopen schools is a situation that doesn't really seem to have any good answers. What's the best path to take? I have a number of friends who teach in public schools. They've been describing the redesign their classrooms have been going through. The administration has told them that desks have to be placed six feet apart, even if that means some students won't be able to see the blackboard from their designated spot. What a nightmare. But is there an alternative? Staying home isn't sustainable. Going to school may not be safe. So what is the alternative? How about forest schools? Now don't laugh. This really is a real thing. I first heard about forest schools many years ago from this week's guest, Kate Jackson. Kate is a teacher. And I think as you listen to this podcast, you'll very quickly be thinking that she is the teacher you wish you could have had. And maybe some of you were actually lucky enough to have someone very much like her. Kate is a teacher, and she's also a climate activist and a horse owner. I met her through the clicker training clinics that I give. And in one of our many evening conversations, she talked to us about forest schools. As I listened, I just was totally enchanted. I would love to have gone to a forest school. It would have suited me down to a T. So the conversation stayed with me. I tucked it away, not knowing really when that information would be useful, if ever. But when the coronavirus shut down schools, I started thinking more seriously about forest schools especially when we started to hear that the risk of spreading the disease is lower outside. So I invited Kate to talk to us about forest schools. What are they? How do they work? Where do they fit in a school program? Lots of questions. And I'm sure if you have children, you'll have many more. And I suspect that after you listen to this podcast, Quite a few of you will be Googling forest schools. You may even be Googling forest schools near me. So here to introduce us to them is Kate Jackson. It's good to hear your voice. It's been, I know, it's been way too long. Yes, because I guess it was Italy last year. That I last yes, yes, yeah. yes, it would have been science camp. And of course, science camp this year is having to go virtual, yes. which is going to be interesting, different. And, uh, and I think 
different in many good ways, but just frustrating that all of these changes have to be made. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So what is what are things like for you there? Um, we are currently, we're sort of coming, we've, we had a lockdown and we're now out of the lockdown. And even during our lockdown, we weren't quite like Italy or Spain. We were still allowed to go for a daily exercise and things like that. Um, but now sort of um, restaurants and pubs have reopened and most people are back at work now. The furlough scheme, we had a furlough scheme where wages were being paid and that's ended. So that's caused a lot of problems now that people are being made unemployed now where businesses are not able to serve things like theatres where they can't, right. they're not allowed right. to be open yet. So people have been made redundant. So there's, yeah, there's an increase in unemployment. Schools are currently going back as of the 1st of September. So, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. I mean, that sort of sounds like where we are as well. That Yeah. Uh, except that that the uh, virus is on the increase here in the U.S. in certain parts of the country, so. Yeah. We've got sort of regional lockdowns happening where there are certain cities where they've locked down, but there's there's always a lot of kind of confusion and people aren't allowed to visit, like, neighbours in their houses, but they can still go to a restaurant. So there's a lot of kind of (laughs) mixed messaging. Yes, yes, which doesn't doesn't add to the feeling of oh they know what they're doing and no. all the, yeah. craziness no. <laughs> just it is truly a crazy um, situation that yeah. we've found ourselves in and yes the cynic the cynical definitely would would argue that uh, they um, if it if it involves the economy then it's open um, but things that are of value that don't involve making money are less likely to be open. And of course, schools have to open because you have to free up all of the workers yes. so they can go uh, yes. run the economy. And we never actually closed. Schools were always open. This is the thing they keep saying about, you know, schools reopening. But we never actually closed. We were open for the children of key workers the whole way through. So we had we provided childcare throughout. So we never actually closed as such. We just didn't have most pupils there. Wow, interesting. Two things that I would love to cover in this time one is this whole idea of forest schools and what are they and how do they work because at least here in the states there's all of this talk about should we open schools can we open schools can we open schools safely Uh, the virus doesn't seem to be to spread as much when you're outside maybe we should just I don't know put up big tents, so I don't know how that helps, and have schools outside, all, you know, all of this. And how do we reimagine school? We need to reimagine school because clearly for a lot of, in a lot of areas, it's not safe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the other area that I would love to talk to you about is the whole Extinction Rebellion and what that experience has been like for you over the past pre-corona year. So when we first met, you were doing the programs for with the, the school programs, introducing children to all those wonderful uh, critters, sort of yes. some yes. of them, the kinds of critters that normally small children go, ooh, ick, don't, you know, take that away from me. So how do you describe yourself? How do I label myself? Yes. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I guess, an edu- you know, I've always been an educator. Everything I've done has some element of education in it, whether it's been 
within the charity sector, whether it's been within private sector or then within schools. Um, there's always been some form of education and, and generally always working with children. Um, I have a very strong inner child, so I, I do get gain a lot from working with children. Um, I find I get as much as I give from children. Yes. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, an educator. <laughs> an educator. Well, that's a good way of describing it. And so tell me about forest schools. Right. So, so yeah. What are they? What are they? So they uh, forest schools is a concept that really originated in Scandinavia and in the UK we now have the Forest School Association and so that provides a sort of umbrella organisation through which people can train, through which they can uh, have CPD, so career professional development, get resources, meet up with others and network. So so we have this sort of umbrella organisation. It also provides a bit of um, coherence um, in terms of what it is because obviously there's a lot of different kinds of outdoor learning and outdoor education um, a lot of people people say to me oh when you do that forestry school thing and I always chuckle because that sounds like a like the the old Monty Python sketch about I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay <laughs> so it's not forestry school we're not learning to uh, fell trees uh, so it's got the six main principles of forest school that makes a session forest schools so it has to be a long-term regular program so it's not a drop-in drop-out thing children need we tend to say at least a six to eight week program of sessions so that there's time for them to explore to be confident in the routines build communities that sort of thing so the idea is it's a regular uh, learning opportunity it's always set in either a woodland or a natural environment i mean there are forest schools that happen in the middle of remote woodlands and forests and there are forest schools that happen in a school in an inner city where there's one tree or a shrub, which is the sort of central focus of the forest school. So as long as there is some form of natural environment, it can happen. It's very much learner-centered, child-centered uh, learning with the idea that you've got these sort of learner-centered processes that then create a community. And it's very much about the holistic development of the child. So very much about their development of connection with nature, of their physical development, mental, emotional, uh, social development. So it's lots of different areas rather than a purely academic focus, although that academic side can be brought in. And then I, I think a really big thing about Forest School is it's about supported risk taking and children learning to take appropriate risks because we're very risk averse as a culture. But the problem is, if you don't give children the opportunity to experience risk, they can go one of two ways later on in life. They're either completely risk averse, terrified of doing anything, and then that perpetuates itself through generations of then parents who are terrified to let their children do anything. Or you get the opposite, which is then the takes incredible risks with no awareness of the level of danger of risk to themselves, to others, to the environment. So you've got those kind of two extremes. So this is about helping children to see the benefits of activities. So whenever we're doing something to do with fire or tool work, work using knives, all those sorts of things, we talk a lot about, well, what, are the, what is the benefit of this activity? What are you going to gain from this? And how do we minimize the risk, recognizing that sometimes you can't remove all risk? Sort of the final principle of that is that, that leaders are qualified leaders so that you've been through some sort of training. There's a, a level three forest school training which then means that you are have been trained up in the ethos and the risk assessment and 
uh, creating guidelines and, and handbooks and all the sorts of things that enable it to be insured and uh, enable people to have confidence that you do know what you're doing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So that kind of, that's the overview of the sort of six key principles of, uh, of what forest school is. And it can happen anywhere. It can be an out-of-school thing. It can be an in-school thing. It can be adults. It can be children. It can be mixed intergenerational. So what age groups then are we generally talking about? So, I mean, it's probably most commonly used with sort of nursery, kindergarten, I suppose you'd call it, and, and early years, we would call it here. That's probably where it's most common because that kind of learning, that, that exploratory play learning is still on the curriculum. I mean, we know that children up to the age of seven should be learning through play. And it's from about the age of seven up that instructional learning um, becomes more relevant. And yet the move away from exploratory learning gets younger and younger all the time. And the testing, we have baseline testing of four-year-olds as they start school here, which anyone listening who's on in sort of continental Europe would be shocked at the idea that children are going into school and being tested at the age of four, because in many countries they wouldn't start school till six or seven years old anyway, um, and certainly nothing formalised. So for a lot of schools, it gives children that outdoor opportunity of learning, but it really does... I mean, the, the organisation I trained with, uh, the Greenlight Trust, they work with young people. They work a lot with people with mental health issues or with learning difficulties, um, a whole range of young adults and adults. So it's not just for children. Yeah, it, it can benefit anybody. And also family groupings coming and doing it as a family as well can be really beneficial. Because certainly one of the things that people keep talking about in terms of we have to open the schools, we have to open the schools, it's not so much the academics that they're talking about. It's the the social interactions yeah. that the children are missing. So it sounds as though the forest schools would be very much meeting that need. Yes, definitely. I mean, the advice that we come, our, our advice from the government on going back in September changes on a daily basis. I, I really yes. feel for school leaders in this country and in and in other countries in the US as well I'm sure it's the same where the guidance is continuously updated and continuously changed but at the moment our current advice is children need to be sitting facing the front sort of Victorian style classrooms so that idea that they're coming back to improve socialization and mental health actually it's not going to be how school was before we're not going to be able to enable I mean in my classroom I often use the sort of Kagan style approach of collaborative learning where you have four children sitting together and they each have a different role to take within that group so they're learning those collaborative team working skills because one of the one of the things I realized when we go into teaching is we teach children the content and the academic skills and then we just expect them to know how to work in a group and and they don't know how to work in a group just right. like many adults don't know how to learn to work in a group so there are things like the Kagan approach which you can use as a way of actually teaching the different roles you could take in a group, whether it's the person who's doing the sort of resource management or it's the person who's kind of taking the note or the person who's facilitating. And all those sorts of learning opportunities indoors are not going to be, well, I don't, I think I struggle to see how they're going to be possible. I have seen some teachers setting up screens so they can still have children facing each other with screens in between. But I, my classroom wouldn't be big enough for that, that's for certain. So outdoor learning gives children an opportunity to work collaboratively in a safer way. However, I can say that from working, our schools already went back with some of the children in July 
And I've been working at a forest school over the summer and trying to have children play and learn in a socially distancing way is is virtually impossible, particularly the younger they get. It's, it doesn't come naturally to children. They're, they're tactile. They want to interact with each other. So trying to have them socially distance is, is very challenging. Yes. And you don't want to you don't want to raise up a generation of germaphobes. No. Can't touch anything or go near anybody. It's not a it's not a good way to grow up. No. No. Certainly, you know, get, inter, physical interaction is is vital. It's one of those interesting conversations that around safeguarding in schools and particularly in primary school there's this kind of misconception that teachers, you know, you, you, basically teachers can't touch children. And and the really good thing that's been coming through recently is is about, there's been a huge amount of work about relationships in schools and this recognition that particularly at primary or elementary school level, you know, that that tactile interaction is is absolutely fine and necessary as long as it's, you know, obviously appropriate and, you know, done in a way that is safe safeguarding the children and the adults but actually physical interaction is is part of communication particularly for children so the idea that yeah that they can't touch us each other we can't have a hug <laughs> you know um yes. is you know that was my when we went into lockdown my last human visit because i live on my own my last human physical contact was a child for myself who, as she was leaving, just couldn't bring herself not to throw her arms around my waist and hug me because we kind of knew that we wouldn't be seeing each other again for quite a while. And two yes. months into lockdown, I thought, gosh, that was the last human interact physical interaction I had because although I live near my parents, I hadn't, you know, to, to protect them, I hadn't had any physical contact with them. And, yeah, so so those interactions with children, are they're part of social learning. They're part of, yeah, day-to-day behaviour. So um, so it's going to be really challenging helping children to understand that, yes, you can talk to your friends, but you can't physically interact with your friends. Certainly with the youngest children, there's been an acknowledgement that, that, that they're not going to actually attempt to prevent them from, from physically interacting with the sort of four, five, six-year-olds. And then the whole getting children to wear masks and yeah. keep the mask on and to stay that physical distance apart. And and I can just picture all of the the teasing and the you know, I've I've got my mask on but it's on my forehead. It just seems like it goes with the territory of of children. Yes. Yes. I, I mean there's been a lot of novelty value around masks. So I mean we uh, in schools in the UK, children are not being asked to wear wear masks. I was quite involved initially, I'm because I'm I'm involved in the union. Um, I was quite involved in a lot of the discussions around how we're going to keep teachers safe because there was a lot of conversation early on where, well, children are at much, much lower risk and children don't really, you know, ch- the children will be fine. And and so there was a big action of, but what about the teachers? And, and your very best teachers are often in that high-risk age category. Yeah. You know, they've got the years of experience behind them. Yeah. That, and you want you want to preserve and keep some of those teachers in the classrooms, but I can, I can imagine that there are many, many people who are really having to weigh up, you know, do I, do I go back into the classroom situation yeah. and risk it, or do I take early retirement? Yeah. At an economic loss. Yeah. 
Yeah, because here, in when we first when we were doing the childcare side of things here, and when we first went back, we had only certain year groups came back at the end of the school year. Any teachers who were vulnerable at most schools, and of course in the UK, like in in the, the states, we've had a lot of acad academization of schools, so they're no longer uh, local authority. They're now run by academies. So depending on which academy you work for, some treated their staff better than others. Um, but I mean, we worked out at my school that if all the teachers who either have their own families at home or are medically vulnerable stayed at home, I would have been the only member of staff in school. Wow. So, you know, there are so many people who have perhaps diabetes or asthma or things that make them more vulnerable that, yeah, we would have been a school run purely by me, which obviously was not going to be logistically possible. <laughs> so, so what did they decide? How do you protect the teachers? For some teachers who, teachers who were willing to come in, there were uh, specific risk assessments carried out for those teachers. In other cases, teachers who felt too vulnerable uh, stayed at home and worked from home and set the online learning element of things but of course at that point we didn't have all of the children back in terms of this in terms of when we go back on the 1st of September I don't think there were going to be so many opportunities for teachers to stay at home and that's certainly a discussion that's that's going ahead at the moment within the unions of what do we do now for those teachers who are now going to be asked to come back because all of the lockdown and the furlough and all of these sorts of schemes have ended so what do we do next to protect those teachers so that's still still very much a discussion at the moment because it, the expectation in September is that all children go back. Right. And then also what in, in our area, it's what you do about bus drivers because mm -hmm. a lot of the people who drive the school buses are older because they're doing it sort of as a second career. So school bus drivers are all in the high risk age category. Uh, it's just the ripple effects go on and on and on. Yeah. I, yeah. Yes, and that's been a discussion here, particularly more for high schools. We have we often have quite small primary schools. I mean, where I am uh, in a rural area, we have primary schools that have 50 children in the whole school, 100 children in the whole school. Um, so we have some very small ones in local communities still um, at the moment. But the high schools, most children get buses. And, of course, there's one bus driver. And then if you're going to expect all those young people to wear masks who's going to police that it can't be the same person who's actually driving the bus right and then once they get to school currently the idea is that the different year groups will all be in their own bubbles but they've already just mixed on the bus <laughs> yes. so therefore those bubbles aren't really going to work if they've all just been together on the bus so there's there's a huge amount of complicated logistics to work out and not enough time to do that and of course, because teachers haven't had a break and school leaders haven't had a break, now over the summer holidays, people are desperately trying to have a little bit of rest and downtime. But of course, all of the guidance is still being released. There's been a lot in the press about schools. So it's very difficult for teachers and, and school leaders to shut, shut off this year, whereas normally you would have a couple of weeks in the middle of the holidays where you could actually not think about school for a little yes. bit. That's, that hasn't happened this year. Wow. So going back to the forest school, mm. So um, they were developed in Scandinavia. What kind of weather are the children out in? Um, all weather. <laughs> so at the moment, we're experiencing a heat wave in the UK. Um, I'm, I'm in East Anglia, which is one of the driest areas of the UK anyway. Um, I believe we're 
uh, our rate, annual rainfall puts us into desert category is my understanding. So we have very little rainfall over here. So it's been very hot. We've been in the, which for the UK, very hot. We've been in the 30s. That's very hot. A, a lot. Uh, since since April, we've had a, a unfortunately, I um due to a neighbour where I got my water from at the field, moved, uh, putting their house on the market, they turned off the water. So I put in a rainwater harvesting system just as the drought started. So I've had a very complicated year of IBC water tanks and trailers and beg stealing and borrowing water from neighbours. And so it's been it's been a really challenging year because we've had since April, we had some rain in June. But apart from that, we've had very high temperatures, very little rain. Um, and yeah, we it's been 30 degrees. So kind of, I guess, high 80s, 90s for the last, well, over a week now. So this is not the kind of weather that we are used to. <laughs> no. no so, so we've been outside with the children. But of course, forest school has been the best place to do, best place to be. So I've been working at... Um, a local forest school that's been doing holiday provision for children. We had the go-ahead to open. Uh, we are, we've got COVID sort of systems in place in terms of the size of groups that we've got and bubbles. We've got hand-washing stations all over the site. I've never left. I, I've been leaving forest school with possibly cleaner hands than I arrived, which is not what you'd normally <laughs> expect having been playing outside all day with children. But, I mean, we've just been so grateful for the trees. It has been proof that trees work, they cool you down. Um, we've got, in the middle of the meadow, we've got a big parachute up, um, a big parachute sort of structure. And although it's cooler under there, it's still, the heat is oppressive under there. So we've had to move everything over to where there's kind of a, um, a ditch or a dike uh, that's empty. There's no water in it because we haven't had any rain. And there's some really large um, crack willows and other trees. And we basically spent the entire time under there with the children. There've been a, a lot of water fights, um, and um, and yeah. So it, I mean, it happens in all weathers. We also, when I do it at school, we go right through the winter. So we're out doing forest school in January with little children, and it's just about having appropriate clothing. Really, um, they tend to stay a lot warmer than we do. There's there's often at schools you'll find the adults running around at playtime telling the children to put their coat, put your coat on, put your coat back on. You're going to freeze. Put your coat on. And of course, the children aren't cold at all because right. they're running around, so they're <laughs> they're warm. It's the adults standing around on playground duty who get cold. <laughs> so yeah, we tend to worry about children getting cold, but actually, I'd say it's more in the heat that we've been having to really monitor their water intake and making sure they remember to come and rest and things like that. Um, but yeah, we're out in all weathers. <laughs> Because I, I, I can see people, imagine, you know, picturing this in the fall, how lovely. Yeah. But as soon as that nip in the air turns or the snow starts to fall, the people say, well, you just, you can't just, you can't do that with children. You yeah. certainly couldn't do it. My, my child, my child needs to be inside and where it's, the heat is turned up and it's a protective yeah. environment. But you're saying no. no. They, they can, they're out in January, bundled up, yeah. but out. I mean, because I've been running forest school within a, within, within a formal school setting, we've only had sort of 90 minutes outside. But um, I know people who run forest schools in Germany or in Scandinavia where the children, nursery-age children, are outside all day. And there will wow. be some sort of sheltered area. There's obviously a fire going, uh, which again, I mean, I, I remember having some of the, the reception-age children, so they're four- and five-year-olds, 
come out for their first forest school session in the winter. And oh, it may have been the set. We may not have lit a fire on the first session, but maybe it was the second session. And I lit the fire and one little boy spent 90 minutes just sitting, staring at the fire. Wow. And I sat down at one point to chat to him because everybody, everybody congregates. Like you're saying about eventually everybody sits down. Eventually yes. everybody sits at the fire because <laughs> eventually it just draws you in. It's this real community hub. And this little boy just sat there and he just looked at me with these wondrous eyes and said, I've never seen real fire before. Wow. And you just, you got this sense of something really primeval. <laughs> like really... Yes. This really ancestral, natural, just sense of awe and wonder at fire, real fire. And yeah, you just forget that children haven't had that opportunity. And if he hadn't been in forest school, he might never have no. had that opportunity. No. And of course, they learn how to make fires. So we teach them ways to safely make fire. We use flints and um, fire steels. So they learn to strike those. And, you know, the first time, and, and the resilience they show. Children who perhaps in a lesson in the classroom might give up quite quickly will sit there for 20 minutes repeatedly striking a fire strike, trying to get this bit of cotton wool or, or a little bit of tinder to light. And when they finally do, the, the sense of achievement is is incredible. That ultimate re fire is definitely a pretty general reinforcer. <laughs> yes, yes. That, that's Especially in January. Yes. So you're talking about creating really resilient individuals. Yeah, 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 definitely. The, the children who we tend to have the fewest behavioral challenges with in forest school are often children we have quite a lot of behavioral challenges with in the classroom because that formal classroom environment for whatever reason is something they really struggle with it could be due to sort of a, um, a medical condition you know or, or a, something along the lines of ADHD or it could just be that they're too, they're too young to be in that situation or they just want you know they children need to move and, and we spend far too much time sedentary in the classrooms um, even you know even as someone who I really strive for my classroom to be a democratic space, an active space. I uh, last year the children helped me to design their classroom, and we designed. We looked at we looked at images of classrooms around the world, and my classroom was a, a Victorian school. It was the old Victorian school hall, so terrible acoustics, high ceiling, long classroom, a really a really difficult space to teach in. So we looked at how children sat in Victorian classrooms, and then we looked at classrooms around the world, and you know, I may have may have shaped them slightly towards the idea of a flexible seating classroom because it was something I wanted to try. So we had cushions, we had a sofa, we had wobble chairs. They could work wherever they wanted. And we just made an agreement at the start of the year that they had choice and control about where they worked. But there was the expectation and they had a responsibility to produce their personal good standard of work we you know expected to see good learning behaviors from them focus and having a go and sticking at their learning and um, presentation that they personally are proud of and as long as they met those expectations they could work with who they liked where they liked and that really improved behavior in the classroom because those children who needed to be able to move could move from one spot to another during the course of a lesson or during the course yes. of the day so it helped 
but it's still not as good as being outside. <laughs> and, and we know that control uh, and choice is a huge reinforcer and Forest School is a lot about giving them choice. So it's a real, I think doing it as just part of the school day gives them that real contrast, but there is no reason why it couldn't be, a, to be honest, there's no reason why it couldn't be a full-time learning environment. Would you still be able to get all of the academic requirements in? Yeah, I, as with all things, things need balance. And actually, eventually children, when left to their own devices, uh, devices and not given any ideas or stimulation, they will get bored and they will want a challenge or something new to, to have a go at. And I think there's definitely a balance to be struck between there is a space for instructional learning and there is also a space for exploratory learning we know that the sort of precision teaching tag teaching way of teaching is important we know that not gaining knowledge is really important but a lot of these things could be set up it's all about setting up the environment we could set the environment up up in a way that the children would be able to choose what to do or how to access it but that we could still ensure they were covering anything it would just require a different way of thinking about it and a different way of setting it up. But, you know, the, the children at the holiday club, we've already played around with lots of maths concepts and English language structure concepts and things through geography and history that they don't even know that they've been doing and they've been learning. But it's just things that we've seen opportunities to kind of throw a question in there or throw an idea in there or read them a story and then let them play based on that story. So I, I think just discovery learning on its own isn't enough and just instructional learning on its own isn't enough. We need to find a way to bring those things together so that the children really can master concepts by learning the skills and the knowledge they need and then being able to apply them in lots of different environments, in varied environments. Yeah. And maths yeah. is, ev I mean, maths is everywhere. Maths, nature is maths. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the math is almost the easiest one to, to reach for uh, yeah. when you're in natural environments. And, and yet most of the outdoor maths learning that happens, when, when you look up outdoor maths learning opportunities, it's almost exclusively either sort of project-based, but you have to, as the, as the leader or the teacher or the educator, you have to know what, what are the prerequisites that they need to complete that project. Otherwise, they're just going to kind of drift about aimlessly and not be able to solve it and get frustrated and give up. So they still need all those prerequisites first to solve a project. Or you see a lot of sort of geometry, shape and art based projects. But what I don't see happening very often and something that I really want to try to develop is that that actual mathematical, the conceptual and procedural understanding of math. So the real nitty gritty of understanding number and place value and addition subtraction multiplication division fraction all of that could be taught outside if not exclusively even just for parts of lessons and then bring it back inside even 10 minutes outdoors is better than nothing outdoors yes yes so how would you envision doing it in the natural environment for example when you're talking about things like place value so children being able to understand how we can unitize, say, with the base 10. So we have ones, we have tens, we have hundreds, we have thousands. You can build that up so that it's proportional. So you could collect one of something, 10 of something, 100 of something, say, with seeds, and actually see how one of something compares to 100 of something, how much, how 
one is a hundred times more. But once they've understood that concept, then you can generalize it to, okay, a pebble is worth one or a stick is worth 10 and a pine cone is worth a hundred. And then you can start doing maths with these concrete objects, but completely abstract objects yeah. and start translating that into calculations and algebra. I mean, it is algebra because you're replacing numbers with objects instead of letters. So there's all sorts of ways that you can teach quite complex mathematical concepts, but through being outdoors, natural materials and a playful approach, if not play, intentional play. Yes, which makes total sense and would seem to me much more approachable than having the written numbers on a blackboard. Yes. And there's, there's, there's amazing people already working this fit in, um, in Scotland as Juliet Robertson. You know, they, the, the creative ideas. So one of the things I got from her was using white pieces of cloth on the floor and then doing all of the mathematical things with the natural ob ob objects on the cloth. And you can draw on the cloth. So you can draw what we call part whole models or cherry models or bar models. You can draw all these things onto the cloth and then use the natural materials. And for the children, that starts to make the connection with pieces of paper because it's that white material. Yes. Gives that visual contrast so it's clear to see, but also it starts to make that, oh, here's how we can link the, ab the, the concrete that we've done outside to and, and turn it into a picture and turn it into abstract and bring that inside as well and put it onto paper or do it on the paper outside. So there's lots of ways you can make that connection and, and make the outside space just another classroom it's just the outside classroom instead of the inside classroom it's not this whole i think with forest school that is that would and potentially should scare some teachers in that you do need to have training to lead it because it is allowing children to climb five meters up a tree or and enabling them to light fires and teaching them to use knives and and loppers and secateurs and think you know it is dangerous if it's not done you know, with training, if it's not done with training right. and, and a knowledge of how to teach children to assess the risk, then yes, it would be incredibly foolish and dangerous to just take a class of 30 children outside and give them knives. You know, that's, <laughs> that's not how we do it. However, outdoor learning, anyone can do. If you're a, if you're a teacher, you can take learning outside. Interestingly, I, um, I raised the question on a teacher Facebook group that was on and just said, what prevents you? What is it that stops you from taking learning outside? And the key, the key things that came back were weather and clothing. Um, and of course, that's partly because in the UK, our children wear uniforms to school and they're not outdoor appropriate. You know, they come to school in the winter with skirts and socks and what we call Mary Jane shoes. I don't know if that's what they're called in the States, but yeah, they're not, no, they're, I can picture it. Yeah, they're not outdoor school shoes. Generally, the, unfortunately, with gender stereotyping, the boys tend to come better equipped for outside than the girls. Not always the case, but sadly often the case. And so then they quickly learn not to like outside because they go outside at playtime and they are cold because they're not wearing clothes that are appropriate for going outside. Even if you put cold, a coat on, if your knees are exposed and it's below zero, you're going to be cold. Yes. So clothing is an issue in the weather. But again, if you go out for 10 minutes, there's ways of doing that. that The children can go out quickly, do some learning and come back in. And then maybe you could go out again at the end of the lesson. Behaviour management is an interesting one. Teachers are really worried about learning, losing control outside. I don't think until I went into teaching, I realised how many teachers really like control. 
And it's certainly not all teachers before I get a teacher's lambasting me. But there are certainly some teachers who are organized to an extent that I could never dream of aspiring to. Um, and, and so they're very fearful of going outside and, and losing that control. But that's where it's all just setting up routines and expectations. Of course, if you never take the children outside, if the only time they go outside is at playtime when they get to do what they want, and then you take them outside to do some learning, they're going to run around like crazy things thinking it's playtime. So that's about setting up the routines and the expectations. And of course, you can do that through negative reinforcement and punishment, or you can do it through positive reinforcement. And so that's where I've used a lot of the tag teach type processes to, to teach the kind of behaviors I want and setting up the environment outside. So maybe having something that acts as a target for where you want the children to go and stand, things like a rope laid out in a circle or using the markings on the playground or, or some natural. In forest school, we have the log circle around the fire and the routine is in every forest school you will go to, there would be the routine that when you come, you sit, you all, I think every forest school session everywhere starts with sitting around the log circle checking in with everybody, doing some form of greeting and bringing everyone together. And then a, a reminder of the routines and the behavior and maybe some sort of game. So I use Tag Teach a lot to teach. Um, the tag point is step outside and they will tag each other. We've done it with clickers, but we've also done it by just shouting tag. And we play a game where they step outside and they walk around to a different place and they sit down. It's not really much of a game, but if you tell them it's a game, they think it's a game. <laughs> and, and so you're, you're then, you know, teaching them to step outside and walk around the outside, which obviously if you've got a fire in the middle is the safe way of moving around the fire circle. So it's about setting up those routines and the environment in a way that produces the behavior you want. But of course, you know, not... Lots of teachers haven't got experience of tag teach or positive reinforcement. They haven't got experience of forest school. And so it, it can seem really daunting. And of course, teachers are extremely overworked. So the idea of doing something new and being brave and stepping, stepping outside your comfort zone is something that teachers are having to do every minute, every day, because we're constantly given this new thing to do. Um, and so I can see why it drops down the list of priorities. And I think the saddest reasons a teacher gave me, and, and I promised I wouldn't be judgmental when they, I said I won't judge, but one of the saddest things that a teacher said is, I have no affinity with the outdoors and nature. And I just thought, oh gosh, I don't quite know what to say now, apart from I need to drag you to a woods and sit you down for a while. Because I just yes. thought that was, yeah, that was one of the saddest things I've read in a while. But yeah, somebody openly says, I just don't have an affinity with nature. So that person yeah. needs to go to forest school. Yes. Never mind teach yes. forest school. They need it themselves. That person need, needs it for themselves because that is a huge missing yeah. hole for them. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that teacher isn't alone. I'm sure there are others who wouldn't be brave enough to write that. So I really appreciated that she wrote that because I, being the kind of, you know, being an outdoors person, I don't think I could have imagined anyone writing that. So for me, that was really valuable feedback that, you know, I knew about the weather. I knew about that people might be a bit worried about behavior. I didn't realize that someone would just say, I just don't have an affinity with nature. So, so that was really, yeah. Yeah. Important. I don't want to, I don't want to deal with the cold in the winter. I don't want to deal with the bugs in the summer. Yeah. And I want to be inside in my climate controlled environment because that's what I know. Yeah. 
it's what I know and what feels safe and where I'm comfortable. Yeah, interesting. So we need forest school for the educators yeah. as well. Yes. Yeah. So, so if the coronavirus continues to spread and where it's increasingly difficult to have children attending school classrooms inside, where the it's easier to pass the infection, the virus from one person to another, in a, in a sense, we may be forced to go to creative models like the forest schools. Yeah. Where you're outside. Wouldn't that be something? Yes. That's what, yeah, that's what I would, I would really hope for. And that's why, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons that I've kind of taken this career leap of faith and, and, and dropped to working part-time in schools and part-time trying to, yeah, develop outdoor, particularly with the focus on maths, because maths mastery is my, my particular passion, passion, but, um, but trying to promote this outdoor learning because I, ju I just think it's so important and it's so important for giving children, you know, it's in the UK in particular, it is seen as culturally absolutely okay to say that you're no good at maths. It is not culturally appropriate to say I can't read. That that isn't a thing. You know, nobody nobody would want to say I can't read. But it's almost seen as a as a cool or a good thing to say, Oh, I can't I can't do maths, I'm rubbish at maths. Wow. That wouldn't be the case in a lot of other countries. So it's a real issue in the UK is mindset to maths which means there's something we're re doing really wrong. And the, the beauty of being outdoors is it, is it is intrinsically motivating for children to be outside, for most children, particularly once, when, they're, when they're in the right clothing, when they're used to being outside. Yeah, children generally enjoy learning outside. So, so it will be a way of changing mindsets just by a bit of classical conditioning, I suppose. <laughs> you know, yes. put, put them in a place that is a positive place and do the thing that is historically perhaps seen as negative and you're kind of you're making those positive associations as opposed to I'm stuck in a classroom and I'm being made to do a thing I don't want to do or I'm scared of or my mum or my dad said they weren't any good at so I won't be any good at. But it all depends it sounds like on having really well-trained teachers creative teachers yeah who know how to make good use of the outdoor environment yeah and how to keep it safe yes that to take a classroom trained teacher and just plunk this individual out into woods and yeah. say, teach, <laughs> it would be totally unfair. Yes. And you would not get the desired result yeah. uh, in many instances. Yeah, I think it's that, it's that approach of almost, I think uh, Sarah was talking about it on the last podcast, that, that sort of the, the doing one thing that leads to another. You know, if you could do, yes. if every classroom teacher could take their class out for 10 minutes and do a learning activity, everybody could do that. And then maybe once you've done that 10 minutes and seen the positive impact on the children, maybe you go, oh, I might do 10 minutes twice a day. Or maybe, maybe at the start, I'll take them outside for 10 minutes once a week and do an activity. And then, oh, maybe I'll do this every day. And oh, maybe I'll do it twice a day. Or maybe we'll go for a bit longer. And oh, maybe we'll have a whole lesson outside. Once they start to see the benefits, which... You know, I have no doubt <laughs> that they would see the benefits at all. But it's just taking that first step of going, okay, I'm going to just try doing that outside. But, you know, it, it's there are issues around, for example, with the bubbles earlier in the year, you know, we couldn't have children using the same outdoor spaces. So we were even splitting up the outdoor spaces that different groups of children were using different outdoor spaces. So 
even that restricts where you can go and what you can do. Um, how much of that will be the case when we go back in September, we don't know yet. But yeah, at the moment, it's it's very complicated. <laughs> yes. And then what would a more, what would an urban school do? How can they uh, make use of some of the forest school concepts and principles? Yeah, I mean, a lot of the principles still will work in any environment. I mean, I, I think in the UK, every school has an outdoor space. And I would imagine in, in other countries, it's the same, that there is some sort of yard or playground. So there's the potential, I mean, you know, there's the potential for growing things in pots and raised beds and planters so that you've got some form of, of natural environment outdoors. There are certainly in the UK schemes that you could apply for, for grants that would allow you to, to put in you know, school allotment areas or, or garden areas. So there would be ways of developing, even if it was a tiny corner of a playground. But also, you know, even just using the outdoor space, even if there's nothing green there, you can still use for outdoor, for, for taking learning outdoors and doing drama activities or chalk and playgrounds. I mean, chalk on a playground is such a great tool. <laughs> they love it because you could be doing exactly the same learning that you were doing in a book with a pencil. But when it's chalk on a playground or on a hot day when it's water and a paintbrush on a playground, so you can paint with it and then half an hour later it's dried and disappeared. Those, those are so exciting for children. And yet it's exactly the same learning. All you've done yes. is change the tools and the environment, which has just made it exciting and more fun. And I can see for some of the teachers who've been just ground down by all of the testing requirements. Yeah. And that their, their reasons for becoming a teacher yeah. seem to be so far removed from the reality of what they experience in the classroom in terms of meeting those test requirements and the restrictions that the forest school approach would just be such a huge oh, reawakening for them yes. and refresher for them. This is why I was a teacher. Yes. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's one of the reasons I haven't, we have certain year groups in the UK who are in primary school, the testing year group. So year six is when they do their SATs ready to move up to high school. And there is a reason I haven't particularly taught those year groups a lot, because I know that helping children to pass a test is not my strong suit. There are teachers who, for whom they actually seem to enjoy that. But it goes so fundamentally against my principles of what education is that I'm I'm in such a state of cognitive dissonance about it yes. that there's no point me trying to teach that those year groups exclusively. I'm much better teaching year groups where I can focus on conceptual understanding, developing their love and enjoyment of learning because then I'm more passionate and enjoy it more. But those children also, you know, those children in those year groups benefit hugely from getting outside. And there's lots of research. There are lots, there are lots of schools who are very brave and have really strong music programs or outdoor learning programs or arts programs. And the evidence shows that their children do extremely well on the testing, despite the fact they've dedicated huge amounts of time to something that isn't on the test. Yes. We know that a well-rounded education and, and we know that things like learning another language or learning a musical instrument or, or good uh, motor skills, fine and gross motor skills, we know that these are predictors for achievement through life and achievement academically. And yet the pressure on schools to pass these tests, get children through these tests, 
is so high that it's completely understandable that schools get completely focused on them. I was lucky enough to travel to Singapore uh, last year. My last flight, I'm now uh, flight free, but my last, my last flight was I was funded with three other maths teachers to travel to Singapore and see how they teach the maths mastery approach. And we went over there with a huge number of misconceptions, thinking that the children were going to be very robotic, extremely well behaved. It was a girls' Catholic school with over a thousand children. And we thought they're going to be, you know, it's going to be sat at desks, lots of perhaps rote learning. And what we saw was could not have been farther, further from the truth. These children were cheeky and funny. The lessons involved huge amounts of talk. They would spend a whole lesson picking apart one class a question. It's where I learned about Kagan collaborative learning. It wasn't anything that we imagined. They took us out on a trip. They do these regular maths and science trails where they go to local. We went to, there's a, there's a big botanic gardens in the center of Singapore. And we went there and they did this maths trail. And so they do a huge amount of creative learning, collaborative learning, talk, mathematical reasoning and talk. And so it, it wasn't what we expected at all. And when we spoke to them and we said, so, you know, they, they obviously do have testing there. And we spoke to them and said, so, you know, what, how how are you compared to the other schools with your test results? Because in the UK, our, our the SATs results of our year six children are used to compare schools and tell you whether you're a good school or a bad school is based on these test results. And in Singapore, they said, but, but why would we compare our results with that school over there's results? Because we have different children. And I just thought, well, yes, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's exactly it. Um, you know, you could you could look at how those children progress through the school, but to compare one school against the other when they're different demographics of children, it's different environments, is is just so foolish. But it's what our education system is is built on that competitive element of the education system that I think really takes away from the collaborative element. Because teachers by nature want to share things. You go on Twitter and on the edge of Twitter. And there are teachers giving away free resources left, right, and centre. I've spent 12 hours putting together this resource. Here, have it for free. It's what teachers do. But the competitive nature of privatisation and academisation of schools, of testing, this high-stakes testing, really stops the amount of collaboration we could have going on. And it's such a shame. It's such a wasted opportunity. Well, and, and in this age where we have to go to the virtual platforms, the there must be some just phenomenal, phenomenal programs that people have developed and videos and course material yeah. that individuals have developed to teach, you know, you name it and it's available. Yes. But you have to know that it's out there, you have to access it. So that there you know, the the idea that every teacher has to come up with the program for teaching her, you know, second grade basic math skills and to do it virtually and to do it because school closed on March 15th and now all your, your interaction with your children are going to be over the internet. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I think there's, again, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of balance between, um, so for example, in the UK, we have things like um, the NCETM, which is the National Centre for Excellence in the Teaching of Mathematics, that's government funded. And they put out some fantastic videos. Um, and we have companies who make videos who, who put out lots of free resources. So there was a huge amount. I think also one of the things I really enjoyed about being on lockdown and teaching online from home was the creativity of it, though. 
so I, I enjoyed being able to have these resources to hand work and say, okay, you could watch this video, you could do this activity. But then also I was able to set my children tasks that I would never be able to set them at school because I was very conscious that a lot of them, there was limited technology at home uh, or they may have older brothers or sisters who were doing high school work, which required using the, the computers a lot. So I knew they couldn't be on the screens all day. Um, so what I tried to do was make them little videos or little um, slideshows that were five, 10 minutes long that then set them a very open-ended task or challenge. And the creativity that came back from the children in my class, I've discovered they've, a lot of them when I say, what do you want to do when I grow up, when they grow up, they say YouTubers, which I always find hilarious because I like to, sometimes I like to make them really cringe and tell them I was a YouTuber 15 years ago or however long ago it was that I started making <laughs> videos of my clicker training online, which really takes the cool, you know, suddenly it's a lot less edgy when you find out your teacher actually has a YouTube channel, but she won't tell you what it is. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, they tell you they want to be a YouTuber, but actually I when I gave them tasks, so for example, um, we've done a lot of science learning about magnets and forces and I set them a challenge to make a magnet game that they could play. And they made me videos of these amazing kind of go fishing games or all sorts of things that they made, uh, race tracks with a magnet underneath with a paper clip car. And I set them, I think my favorite task was I set them a human evolution challenge. We were learning about the stone age. So I asked them over the course of a week to make little tasks or videos to show why things like uh, by being bipedal was an advantage, why having um, precision grip, grip and opposable thumbs was an advantage. And one of the little girls, she'd, she made a videotape where she did a series of tasks with her thumbs duct taped to her hands. So she tried to button up her jump cardigan. She tried to peel a banana. She tried to do all these different, she wrote something. And then she took the, cut the duct tape off and did it all without with, with being able to use her hands normally. And you think, when would that have happened in a normal school day? Right, I right. never could have let them, given them the time to come up with those ideas. So there was some real joy in that as well for me to see their home learning. But of course, there were the children who, for whatever reason, were not engaged, whether it was through lack of support at home or lack of technology. So, you know, while there were really wonderful, creative things like that from children who, who did have adult support, there are also children who have missed six months of school, who've just... You know, we checked in with them weekly. Obviously, we did wellbeing checks, but we can't make them learn at home. So there will be children who, who in often, oftentimes were already children who were behind or, or finding things difficult because they didn't have the support at home. They've now missed out even more support. So that is something we need to be really aware of for September, that children are going to be coming back at very different places, um, both mentally and emotionally and in terms of their learning. Which seems a, another great reason to get them outside in forest schools yeah yeah to be doing things that everyone can achieve at yes and then to reconnect them with a uh the community with a school community yeah that would be a wonderful transition back into school yeah yeah and that conflict resolution a lot of them will have either spent too much time with a sibling or in the case of only children they may have had very little contact with other children for quite a long time and, and in forest school, one of the things we really try to do is be fairly hands off with conflict resolution. We're there to support. We're there to, you know, occasionally suggest things, obviously intervene if things get out of hand. But for the most part, when children are given space to solve problems themselves, they will find a way to solve 
the problem. And also, you know, sometimes if things do get a bit of out, out, out of hand in a game that it goes too far, I, I was actually sat around the, I, I did think of you when I did this, I was sat around the fire circle with a group of, uh, we have two youth groups who come, and we were sat around the fire talking about uh, some, some boisterous play that got a bit out of hand. And I started telling them all about Yak Panksep and the rats and the, the playful giggling rats and how, you know, rats will play. But eventually somebody, you know, somebody gets fed up of being the, the, the one on the losing side all the time. Somebody eventually wants to end the game. And, and we talked about being able to recognize when that was happening and recognize if you're the one who's winning and you're still enjoying it, how can you spot that the person you're playing with actually isn't enjoying it anymore? How can that person be confident to say, I'm not enjoying this anymore, I want to stop? So yeah, it was really fun to be talking talking about yeah, Panksep and rats <laughs> round a round a fire circle with, with a group of teenagers. So yeah. Yes. So if somebody's listening to this and thinking, oh, forest school. That's what I want for my children. Yeah. Where where should they look? So there will be schools, formal uh, sort of state schools that have forest school programs. And I would imagine those schools would be promoting them quite a lot because obviously it's a very advantageous thing to have. But if your school doesn't, child school doesn't offer it, then um, it would be looking locally for a forest school provider. So, for example, the one I work for is a community interest company. So it's a non-profit company in the local town run by forest school leaders um, that does holiday clubs and after school clubs but also does work with schools so there are certain schools that pay to come and then have sessions on the site so it's probably I mean in the UK there's the forest school association and all the registered providers are there there may be something similar in the US (laughs) I did not think to google that before I started but yeah it will be, it will, or, or Ecosia, I should say. <laughs> um, but people, can, people will just have to do their own research. Yeah, but there is, yes. there are, there is the Forest School Association, there would be some sort of governing body in most countries that then provides the training for qualified people to run, uh, run those sessions. Excellent. And then, of course, one of the reasons for having a forest school experience is we then have children who feel a connection to the natural world. And that brings us to the other topic, which is that of climate change and the Extinction Rebellion. And you became quite active in the Extinction Rebellion. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like to go from somebody who has has never been lying down in the middle of the street. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm essentially uh, a law-abiding person, <laughs> but with strong principles. Cue the music. This is a great place to stop. I don't know about you, but listening to Kate makes me wish that I could have gone to a forest school when I was little. It's exciting to think of the children who are growing up with this kind of experience. They're going to be connected to the natural world. It's not just going to be a playground that they visit on their holidays, something that otherwise they're separate from, and it really doesn't matter. They're going to grow up brave and resilient and full of love for people and for the planet. That's why I've included this conversation about forest schools 
in this podcast. So how can horse people make a difference? Well, for starters, we can tell our friends who have young children about forest schools. We can send them the link to this podcast. How's that for a gentle nudge? And who knows, maybe some of you who have land, who have meadows and ponds and streams and woodlands, and of course horses, maybe some of you will be so inspired by the idea of forest schools that you'll do more than send your children to a forest school. Maybe you'll explore ways for your beautiful land to become the site of a forest school. Wouldn't that be a magnificent way to share your land with others? To learn more about forest schools, begin with the website forestschoolassociation.org. And next week, we're going to shift gears back to looking a little more directly at climate change. Kate's going to share what it's been like for her to be part of the Extinction Rebellion. If you have already been actively involved in some of the many protests that have occurred on behalf of the environment, you'll love the creative ideas Kate brings to these nonviolent demonstrations. And if you have only looked on from the sidelines, but wish you could be more actively involved, Kate's energy and Kate's suggestions will help you take the first steps in that direction. So remember, however you participate, horse people can make a difference. And together, we are learning how.